Welcome to the Good Athlete Podcast, the voice of the Good Athlete Project. We've known about Derek Woodski for a while, but it wasn't until last December at the Power Athlete Symposium that we realized what an incredible human being he actually was. So we're down in Austin at this conference and it is full of incredible people. We're talking like NFL vets, uh, Navy SEALs, the whole lot. Incredible, inspiring human beings. And even among that field, Derek Woodski seemed to jump off the stage. He speaks with such authenticity. He understands athletes. He was an NCAA All-American and a national champion in track and field. He understands coaches. He's been a sport performance coach at the NCAA and NFL level. Now he travels the world doing that. And he understands people and psychology. I've been accused of this too, but this guy could talk for days. And what makes him unique is that just about everything he has to say is incredibly well considered, surprisingly insightful, and applies to all of us, athlete or not. If you don't know about Derek Woodski yet, it's time. I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as we did. Yeah, you know, for the most part, like, and I know that some people that'll hear this will have heard this before, but it's definitely, for me, I was uh, pretty much a small town kid. So I grew up in Western British Columbia in the heart of the Rocky Mountains. Like, and when I say the heart of the Rocky Mountains, I always laugh because for anybody that's big into the podcast world now, like Joe Rogan, for example, has gone heavy into the hunting world and he's got Cameron Haynes and he, and they're talking about all these great Canadian adventures they're talking about where I grew up, right? And it's really strange to hear them making reference to these issues that are happening in British Columbia because for me, that was, you know, from the time I was born until I was 18, I grew up disconnected from the bigger picture. You know, we had satellite TV, so we watched 90210 as a kid, but we were a long ways from Beverly Hills. So when I look at it that way and I hear people now talking, you know, almost romantically about where I grew up, it's sort of a funny thing because I did grow up extremely isolated with bears and moose and elk and deer. Like that was just how it is. And it's how it still is when I go back home. You know, I sleep with the window open at my parents' house so I can hear the wolves howl at night because that's just the way it is. Yeah. But with that also came a tremendous amount of isolation of opportunity. So how I got onto the track and field path, which eventually got me to the University of Wyoming for athletics, was really matter chance. Like when I was in the ninth grade or what you would think of, I guess, is freshman year in the U.S. system. Um, so when I was in the ninth grade of high school, I had a PE teacher, you know, like anyone would, that was doing basically a track and field block during the spring cycle of, of PE class. And we all did the event one or two times. We all did a long jump. We all had to run a little bit. We all threw something. And nobody was any good at any of it because we didn't have a track program. I wasn't any good at it. But I was way better than everybody else at one thing, and that was the discus throw. For some reason, I could just sort of move my body in a way that made the discus fly in the right direction. And so I did throw it that year. And I went to what would be the equivalent to like a qualifier for state. I didn't make the equivalent to the state meet or what we call provincials that year, but I made it to like the regional level. And I look like I look terrible because I still didn't know how to throw it. But when I got there, I was introduced even in rural British Columbia to bigger centers and those kids did know how to throw it. Not only did they know how to throw it, but there was actually some really good coaching happening. And so there I was watching at like 14 years of age, these kids moving in a very weird way with this implement. And I wasn't doing that at all. And so that got my brain thinking. And my father, who had been an extremely good athlete, but grew up in an even smaller town than I did, you know, he was a guy that was doing, you know, like a scissor kick high jump before the flop came out into a sawdust pit like way back, right? He remembers lifting weights at 16. And what they did is they would go into the big factories and find different size sprockets and put them on a scale and they would find sprockets that matched. So like one sprocket would be 50 pounds. So then they would search the place and find another sprocket that would be also 50 pounds. And that became their two plates for a bar. 
And we're talking teeth sprocket like you would turn a giant piece of machinery with. That was his first weight set. So when he saw that I had this aptitude towards track and field, he, he got really excited because he had really liked track and field. So he became like the huge supporter of it, the big motivator of it, would always been extremely active kids. And so I kept at it and I kept throwing and my dad, you know, would seek out books from the library because the internet didn't exist. And, and he would watch and would try to figure it out and would stumble along. And we stumbled and stumbled and stumbled through high school and met and talked with different people until we sort of started to figure it out. And coming out of high school, I did not have marks that warranted a scholarship at any level, even at the JUCO level. I just wasn't throwing far enough. But I'd done pretty good at the provincial level. Um, basically, I in the shot, disc, and hammer, I had gotten three silvers or three second-place finishes at, say, uh, population equivalent to the Idaho State track meet. It'd be about the same population state-wise. Um, that's what British Columbia would be comparable to, not California by any stretch. So, you know, I would have placed third in all three events at like the state meet in Idaho. Um, we, so there were some very good guys, obviously just like that. But what that did is it sparked enough interest in me to like take a year after high school. And because I didn't have any scholarships, I tracked down the best, uh, track and field club that was training outside of the high school system. And they'd produced some Olympians way back in the day. And that was in Trail, British Columbia. Now, Trail, British Columbia was a, like a hard city. When we talk about hard cities in the United States, places I've personally lived, I think like Cleveland, I think of, you know, Detroit. I've lived in Detroit. I've lived in Pittsburgh. Like basically all the places you vacation in America, I've lived at in one time or another. <laughs> and, yeah. and so... When you think of Rust Belt cities, that's what Trail was. Okay. Trail was the city that refined the heavy water for the atomic bomb. Like this place was hard. Yeah. Everybody that lived there was uh, was an immigrant. Um, you know, Canada is a little different. So eventually, you're all Canadian, and that's how people are in that part of the world. Like they they move there and they sort of shed their history. My family did as well ditch, you know, they don't teach their kids to speak a second language. So like my grandfather could speak German, but not my father. Um, so that was sort of like how it was at that time, but trail had a little more of that traditional route to it. So when you got into this town, half the city was German, half the city was Italian. When you were in the Italian half of the city, all the signage was in Italian. When you're in the German half, all the signage was in German. And these people were hardworking people. And so I went there for a year and just trained. I was about, you know, 18 turned to 19. And I trained under a coach named Wilhelm Krauss. Now, Wilhelm Krauss had been a coach since the 1930s from Germany. Wow. Um, he had fought for the Germans, lost an entire family during the Second World War. So the family I knew was his second family. And when I say second family... Second wife, second kids, second everything. Jeez. He had lost an entire side of his history. He was the coach in uh, in trail. And he, by the time I worked with Wilhelm, so Willie, Willie was probably in his 90s. And Willie sort of was the guy that gave me the fundamentals at like 18, 19 to sort of start looking like an athlete. At that point is when... I started to meet athletes. One of his was a decathlete from Washington State who would come home for the summers. And speaking with those athletes, they were the ones that told me about the JUCO system in the United States. They're like, listen, you're probably not going to get a scholarship to D2, D1, but there's this thing called a junior college, and you might have the ability to get in that way. And that's exactly what I did. So I used the JUCO door to get into the NCAA system. And then my athletic career really just exploded from that point forward. Well, and, and I want you to keep going, man. You're on a roll. I, um, I'd like to hear a little bit more about your time at Wyoming. I actually just listened yeah. to your, um, your with podcast Robin. with Robin. It was, I thought it was yeah. awesome, by the way. She's, Thank you. she's cool. Robin is one of my favorite humans on the planet. So Robin and I go back a long ways. Now, yeah. here's an interesting thing about that. 
and this is where it gets interesting. So, so in the, in the podcast I did with Robin, you know, we talked a little bit about the hairy nature of what Wyoming was like at the time and Wyoming, you know, they recruited a bunch of misfits and the misfits were pretty good. Um, you know, we had four people, uh, qualify for the Olympics from that team. Um, three went Robin didn't, she had the suspension, um, but she still qualified, which for Wyoming to produce four Olympians in one year is, is unbelievable. Um, and some of them were very good. Like Jessica cross who we took from basketball when her basketball career in Wyoming finished, she had a year of eligibility left. She switched into track and she qualified for the Olympics in two events. It's never been done since and had never been done before. So she had qualified for the Olympics in the hammer and the shot put, right? So we had this really interesting group. Kevin Mannon, who transferred from Ohio State to Wyoming, was a 13-time All-American. What? How do you do yeah, that? So, so not only were we forced to be competitive, we were forced to be competitive and multidiscipline. Yeah. You know, we had Jason Gervais and Robin Bolf. We all three of us had been JUCO national champions. So we're all Canadian. So Robin was from literally Podunk, Alberta. I was from Podunk, British Columbia. Jason Gervais was from middle of fucking nowhere, Timmins, Ontario. We couldn't have been from more out of the world places than these three. And we all got recruited because we were all JUCO national champions. So he brought in the three best JUCOs. Jason Gervais was a a 200-foot discus thrower like a monster. Yeah. Uh, Robin was multi-event monster. Yep. Um, Jason and Robin both qualified for the Olympics. Jason went. Um, I came in as a JUCO national champion in the hammer. And then that group mixed in with a bunch of division one amalgamates that came from everywhere. And we created this squad that was, that was incredible. Um, and, and we did really, really well. We led the national polls. We led the world polls at different events. We had uh, we had some things like, you know, I never used to talk about this stuff as candidly because I always feared as a strength and conditioning lecturer that if I talked about some of the numbers that it may make people misunderstand the information because they might get that illusion that it was easy for us, right? So if I'm talking X numbers on the bar, but trying to teach fundamentals, they'll be like, well, right. you don't understand fundamentals and you never had them. But like some of the things that were like legitimate, like I, <laughs> I always laugh because I squatted 600 for six with just a belt and wraps when I was in college. And I, and I always tell that story with the follow-up that I was never the strongest guy on the day. Holy cow. Right. So Kevin Mannon had a 620 for six <laughs> and Jason Hammond squatted 660 for six. Oh my and none of us were weightlifters by nature. We yeah. just were in a system that had to lift a lot of weight to be successful because we thought that that's what it took. Now, 20 years later, an experience tells us that we all probably could have been a lot better had we balanced out that focus or had a coach that took a little bit of stress off of us. Yeah, like right. I always tell people, you know, I squatted 700 pounds twice in my life. One time it, it cost me a year of and a a year of the ability to walk. The second time it produced a Canadian national record. The only difference was how the coach had set it up. So in the, in the Wyoming days, it was just volume and mashing and volume. And I blew up, I blow out my patella tent. When I came back from that injury, I squatted 700 again under Judd Logan's program as a post collegiate. And not only did I never get injured with Judd, I probably didn't have any days where I was really that sore. That's amazing. Yeah. So it's just how someone understands the nature of the beast in terms of training parameters right. and just understanding that one coach was coaching for the sake of, you know, uh, markers on a board, whereas the other coach was developing human beings to be better athletes and better people. Well, you just pretty much hit like the, the divide there. That's like we look at that all the time. Uh, let's backtrack for a second, though. I want to hear about the injury. Because mm-hmm. I'll tell you, first of all, the story is super interesting, but also one of my concerns is that um, in what I call the like economy, right, where, yep. where your big post, you know what I mean, where, that people are probably fast tracking that kind of stuff um, yes. far too often. Maybe it's under direction of, of someone in someone's uh, training program. Maybe it's only their own, I don't know, well-intended perhaps, 
um, aim at some sort of fame or, or voice or, or sense of self-worth. So I actually, truthfully, full picture, I don't want to discredit those people if that's where they find their self-worth. But there's some guidance right. that, that ought to be folded into this so that we don't have a massive injury. So how did uh, I heard a little bit about, again, in that, in that podcast, the three and three, right, the six-day yep. workout program. Tell us a little bit about how you got to 700, but semi-broken. Semi-broken 700. And so the way that we did it initially, um, for example, when we were going through the collegiate system, and some coaches still do this, and it's a bit of a mistake, is they will, okay, let me backtrack. We know that from a training standpoint, the biggest equalizer of time is going to be volume. So we know that if we have a limited amount of time to reach X performance or have the potential to reach X performance, which may be an All-American national champion or a world team, if you have limited time, the only way to – there's two ways to do it. And I'll talk about them both because I think it's important people get a big picture idea. The two ways to do it is, one, regulate volume to the point that you – basically push through and get more done in say a 12 month period and get more repetition so that you get to the next level faster. Okay. Now you can stretch out that training age and say what you achieve in 12 months would normally be done in three years. If you're in a properly developed developmental program, and that's pretty normal. That's how it should be. You start a little younger, you take a little more time, you get to the same end goal. What happens in the collegiate system is when you don't have the time, coaches will fast track that by escalating volume of sessions. It's why the NC2A has created rules against it. Because prior to my, to my class or my generation, which was directly responsible for infractions being added to the NCAA handbook, coaches were pushing that training window aggressively. Um, you know, we train twice a day, every day of the week. Yep. That's not allowed. It's never really been allowed, but it wasn't in the handbook for a long time. What happens is you can shorten that window and you can get to higher levels of performance in a shorter amount of time, but it comes back to what was the cost to the physical aspect of the body? What was the cost to the psychological aspect of the body? Is that, is that person going to be able to recover from it? mentally and want to enjoy sport? Probably not. They're probably going to be burnt out. Um, the, the other thing that people have always done and they're still doing it and they manipulate that volume window by performance enhancement drugs. That's how they get around it. So they're like, if someone can't recover, we'll, we'll increase their restoration rate. Like a lot of people, you know, mis misunderstand anabolic steroids, for example, as, as these things that make bodybuilders bodybuilders or make Arnold Schwarzenegger Arnold Schwarzenegger. And that's not really how they work. What they do is they shorten the window between exposures. So if it is taking you 48 hours to recover from a hard workout and you upregulate that with an anabolic external, now maybe it's only taking you 25 hours to recover. So you can, in theory get more volume in in a training year and and everything comes back to volume and there is a time and place for volume the problem is is when you escalate volume for performance you have to escalate it in a way that the body can recover from a lot of these coaches and they still do it i know they do they push the volume too quickly too often too aggressively to try to shorten that window and that's where a lot of wear and tear and injury occurs. It's what's happening in sports like CrossFit. So when I look at CrossFit, CrossFit today, for example, what it really reminds me of is the Wild West days of the old NCAAs. So before the, you know, overseeing body got involved and, you know, did drug testing and did limitation to coaching hours and then limitation to student athlete involvement, it, it was a Wild West scenario. And that's what CrossFit is going through because they, they know it, it, it's not a complicated thing that you're like, okay, if I'm not very good at something, I just have to do it more. The problem is, is when that complicated thing actually causes damage to the body to get better at. So you can get away with it for a while, but eventually it will catch up to you. And usually in, in this scenario, it's going to be either a physiological or a psychological breakdown. The body just can't continue or the mind, you lose right. the desire to perform. 
And so that's what we were sort of going through during those Wyoming days. We were always pushing to the red. You know, we weren't given the restoration. The concept of supercompensation didn't even exist, which is essential for big level performance, you know. And because of that, a lot of injuries happened to a lot of us on that team where we were training six, six days a week, twice a day. Typically, one day was competitive. So what we would do the first three days is we'd do all max effort stuff, whatever that repetition range was, but it was typically max effort. And it was simple. It was not complex. September was tens. October's were eights. You know, November's were sixes. And that would progress all the way down to the start of indoors, then would be in some max effort stuff. And then from Thursday, Friday, Saturday, we would repeat the workouts, but everything would be five sets of 10, five sets of eight, five sets of sixes. So if we were getting down to say six triples in the clean, on a, on a Monday workout, we were coming back on that Thursday workout and we were doing say in a situation, three sixes, it would just be flip-flopped, right? but we were just getting a huge amount of volume and everything was like that. Now, with that being said, athletes are always a little bit more clever than we often give ourselves credit for. And me and my teammates were self-regulating a lot of that stuff. If no one was watching, we weren't working because our volume was too high. We couldn't keep up. But with that being said, there was a lot of days that you just pushed through it anyway. And so, you know, when you compare that, which was a system that got me very injured to what I was doing with Judd Logan, when I was in theory, way more advanced and way more capable of volume, we were training in weight room three to four days a week, because that was what we needed to, to reach our goal levels. You know, it was way more restoration, way more focus on the skill of the sport and way less focus on the repetitive nature of lifting weights. Yeah. Um, and the result was significant. You know, a lot of people assume that we were squatting three times a week with Judd. I squatted once a week with Judd. That's it. Yeah. I got to a 700 pound squat with a once a week leg workout. The other lower body workout was supplemental. It wasn't another pounder, you know? That's like, dude, that's, it's so, it's refreshing to hear guys like you talk about that. We're trying to spread this message a little bit too. I, I worry that the, uh, the grind mentality, the, um, the rise and grind, like don't sleep. You gotta be willing to give up sleep sort of mentality. Um, yeah. it's just, it's kind of sexy, I guess, in the, in the sense yeah. that it gets you views on, you know, you know, like yeah. I said, we're in a different sort of, uh, age of attention here, but, uh, the very real truth of the human body is it that it is as good it's better at one thing than anything else and that is staying alive in order yes. to stay alive it's a system of stress and recover non-stop in every way physical and psychological right you put a stress on it you can recover uh so that your, your body just is ready i don't want to meet that stress in the same way again so i'll recover to prepare for it right but if you forget that back end entirely i mean i i don't want to I mean, it's almost silly, right? It, it, it makes such obvious sense that to, to lose the back end, you see diminishing returns. Um, but I don't know, man. I, so I, I'll tell you one thing. I, 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 go ahead. I have a couple of theories on it. But tell it's not very politically right. correct. That's right. I want to hear him. Anyway. Right. So a couple things. A good friend of mine said this last week, Coach Ryan Family. He said that all hypertrophy is is being able to push the volume as high as possible while still being able to recover. Okay. Okay. That's all it is. So hypertrophy is the maximum volume, the maximum volume in which you can recover from. Yeah. Whatever, whatever that is. If, if you want to go back in time, it could be a guy like Steve Reeves doing three full body workouts a week. It could be guys like us doing four sessions a week. The problem is, and this has been a big change in the last five years. It's been a dramatic change in the last 10, and it's been a huge change in the last 15. The ease of access and the un, the unhinged uh, moral feelings toward performance enhancement agents yep. has dramatically changed. And, I, and I'm not, by no means am I a soapbox guy. Um, if somebody wants to, to use testosterone and, and, and whatever, I'm not going to get involved. It's like when Ryan and I talked about this, 
I will give you my opinion if I think you're being crazy, mm -hmm. but I'm not going to give you my opinion about the subject in terms of right or wrong, Fair. especially with an adult. A, it would make me a hypocrite because I've worked with athletes that openly admit to use. B, I'm 41 years old. I understand the benefits on the health side. Sure. But with that being said, that doesn't include the side of it that's really messed up. And as someone that travels all over the world, the most dramatic example of this I can give is I was lecturing and a friend of mine from South Africa, female coach, and one of her good friends, not even a client, very fit, very athletic 40-year-old woman, started to have some issues uh, with masculinization and just very subtle, but things were going wrong. And so... You know, my, the friend of mine is having a consult with her and it's like, well, what supplements are you taking? And she goes, well, I'm working with this trainer and he's got me taking the supplement. I think when I start taking the supplement that it started to cause these issues. And they're like, well, what is the supplement? She, she's not a fitness person. She just works out. She goes, ah, it's some sort of bodybuilding supplement called Anivar. And yeah, right. And so when I was being told this story, I was, I was blown away because I'm like, okay, this guy in South Africa giving this mom a bodybuilding supplement, which only makes him look like a superstar because his clients have dramatic results, right, right. is giving her the anabolic anivar, which we know is a pretty <laughs> effective bodybuilding steroid that most female and male bodybuilders use. So I remember hearing this story and just being like, holy shit, this industry's changing. I'm like, it's gone from the underground to the mainstream. Yeah. People don't even realize the, the consequences of their actions. And so I just sort of parked it in my head. About six months later, I'm talking to a really good coach here in the United States, and she was from Montreal. And I'm telling her the story, and she couldn't believe it. She was blown away. And she's my age, so she was like the same thing, the same stigma. Like, you don't just take Anvar. Like, it's not something you just take. It's right. not a, it's not from GNC. And so she called up a really famous coach in Montreal and was telling him the story. And he goes, you know, I have to admit, I do the same thing. What? Yes. And that is the moment that I had to sit back and reevaluate my entire moral construct of how much the industry has changed. Yeah. That a coach in South Africa and a coach in Montreal, Canada, both in the private sector that are making dollars off of hours on the floor are, are not telling their clients that the Anavar that they're giving them is an anabolic steroid, but instead are selling them on the idea that they're taking this really cool hush-hush supplement. When I realized it had gotten to that point, I then took a step back and looked at social media and saw how much it was changing and how strong people were getting and how strong everybody was getting. And not just once or twice a year like Ed Cohn competing. Right. Mm -hmm. Every week, everybody's just hammering, hammering, and hammering. Totally. And, and like, you don't have to be a genius. And, and this isn't going to be a breakthrough in conversation. But you take someone like Louis Simmons. Louis Simmons has openly always spoke about the integration of anabolics into his training systems. You know, he's just like, I've been on testosterone for 25 years. He's just very open about it. He's also a guy that had mass effort work in one form or another every week of his training. Even if the exercise selections changed, like um, conjugate training systems. So like, yeah, maybe he doesn't deadlift every seven days, but he's going to do a max effort dead, a max effort good morning, a max effort RDL, and then on that fourth week, a max effort dead again. He was doing that. So when you start to look at people that are doing that now and, and not even doing it as intelligently as Louie, right. but are still getting away with it, and Louie openly admits to doing a quarter of a century of straight testosterone use, yeah. then don't tell me that you guys have just figured out how to train better than Louis Simmons. Yeah, I'm with you, man. I'm with you. I think it, it's sad. I, uh, it's not just the donuts that are fueling your deadlifts with no disrespect to any companies out there. But it's like right. I, you see four, five, six hundred pound deadlifts regularly by people. And, right. and the truth is and, and we've created it to a point because nobody wants to see sets of eight or ten of good mornings with fantastic form. Yeah. You know, no one yeah. wants to see that sort of stuff. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we've kind of created a monster, sadly. Yeah. And see, the, the private side of the fitness industry, 
Okay, so I've I've forced gumped my way through this career a little bit. Like there's things that are crazy. For example, I was friends with the very first person to test positive during the Belco scandal. Wow. So like the inside of the inside. Yeah. I was able to sit there and just be like, you're doing what? Oh, that's crazy. How do you do this? What is this stuff? And have someone like talk through the whole thing and we're just like, holy shit. That's like undetectable. This is crazy. Like, how are you guys getting away with this? And then like four months later, after the whole scandal blew up, he's on the cover of USA magazine with his training partner. And we're just like, holy shit, they got hot. Right. And so like to see this whole industry from the guts out and being the guy that's been a a bit of a fly on the wall of a lot of really weird scenarios. um, None of it is a surprise, but what I do know for sure is that none of it is sustainable. Totally. Absolutely. And that's the problem. So if there was ever a time where you could think flash in a pan, it is the current state of the fitness and athletic industry. I think that's because you you can't keep up. You just can't. It's too much. You can't. And, and I'm with you on this, by the way. We're, so we're called the Good Athlete Project, but uh, we we do our best not to make moral judgments. We we like right. we want to make sure that things are well considered, uh, that you kind of know what you're getting into, and that, that uh, right. your behavior matches whatever your goal might be. And right. and I was talking to a power lifter uh, not too long ago. I won't name any names, but essentially the decision came uh, early mid twenties winning meets with 14, 1500 pound totals. And the question becomes, do I, do I continue winning meets or do I go try to be a world champion? Uh, And so the decision was try to be a world champion. Now, you know, just hearing from you and thinking through this, I wonder is taking another step back is it possible, however, for that person to have the the foresight, like the understanding to understand, like to um, to be able to weigh that? I suppose, right? I, I understand the person knows what they're getting themselves into, but do they know what it lo- what this looks like at sixty when you're no longer able to produce these things on your own, and, and you know, a lifetime. Naturally. Yeah, and I can even speak from my own personal perspective because, like, I've had seven surgeries on my legs, nine surgeries total on um, my. Last surgery was about three, four years ago. I almost lost my foot because I got a, an Achilles tendon injury that went south. Um, so when I look at everything, I can remember having a conversation with my father when I was in my 20s. And I'd already had the, pate- pre, uh, the patellar ligament rupture, mid-patellar rupture. And, you know, we knew that I wasn't done athletically yet. But he's like, you have to be really cautious because it will catch up with you. Um, now at 41, yeah, man, uh, some bad days and I'm an active guy. I do a lot of the stuff, right. Um, I, I try to take care of my body, but I'll tell you what, last weekend out of the blue, like on, like did not see it coming completely immobilized for three days. What? And what it's, what appears to be is either I got a ruptured disc in my neck in an arthritic spine because of the years of training. And, and so as soon as it happened, uh, a friend of mine, that's a, a doctor of pharmacology. She's like, took it like, basically it's like, okay, this is the strongest combination over the counter that we can do. And it worked like get a friend that's a pharmacist. Cause they know how to put medications together to treat pain pathways. Um, but with that being said, it was an additional wake up call. And when I look back if I could go back to my 20-year-old self with today's technology, I'm not so sure that I wouldn't have started using peptides and some of the things that people are getting away with now back then, knowing how powerful they are at the regenerate the restoration regeneration side of it. Um, you know, I'm very open about this. When when I almost lost my leg. I was like doing daily hyperbaric chamber treatments at the Denver wound clinic, man. I was doing the three hour tube sit with people that, you know, had, uh, you know, cancer in the esophagus and, uh, lost all their teeth because of radiation treatments. And these are old people, people that were going through it. And there I was sitting with this giant hole in my leg, initially feeling pretty sorry about myself, thinking I was in the world's worst case. 
And it gave me a different perspective on things. What it also taught me was that I wasn't healing and I was doing everything right and it still wasn't getting better. And so I, and I had an amazing surgeon, Dr. Tomes was looking over the entire thing and I'm like, okay, he's not giving me answers. I've had this hole in my leg for over a year. I need to come up with something fast because we were getting to that point where they were going to get real dramatic with their choices and basically amputate the bottom half of my calf and the uh, Achilles tendon completely. And, and then I would have been done. So I took a step back and I, you know, put the old research hat on and started to get creative. And, and I found peptides, things that I, you know, I won't even say the name because I don't want to give people false information, but I found peptides and then I found other things that weren't peptides like, uh, in Germany, they make an injectable form of Tremel, the cream that we use here in the U S that you buy at whole foods. Well, in the rest of the world, it's, it's a, it's an injectable. So I, I got a bunch of this Tremel and I took a specific peptide and I'll, I'll tell you what, this is exactly what I did. I took that peptide and that Tremel and I started injecting it into the open hole in my leg every day. I injected the wound, I injected the tendon because they said I was going to lose the leg anyway. I was like, F it. I'm, I'm, I'm just going to go and, and see what happens. Not only did it heal after a year, it healed in 14 days. What? Exactly. So then I, I you know, and I didn't know what to say. So I go into the wound clinic and I Who, who, my who is directing this, by the way? Or you, you, uh. This was, this was, this is Dr. Derek Woodski's director. Fair enough. Right. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, it was, and this is where it got interesting. So I've done all this research, right? And, uh, you know, I'd even done stem cells. I, I've been up to the stem clinic in Vail and I've done stem cells. So I really invested to try to save this leg. Yeah. And so I remember going in after, you know, for a follow-up at Dr. Tomes and I'm like, listen, doc, um, I have to come clean. I started to lose hope and I got real creative and he's like, oh, tell me what you did. And I, I told him peptides I used. I told him the injectable Tremel. I went through the whole protocol. I told him that I was injecting, you know, like 25 injections a day in around the tissue to try to get the edema out because the Tremel is a powerful anti-inflammatory, but it's a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory. It's totally holistic. Did all this stuff. And he sort of sat there like quiet because wound care in America is a monster problem. So what people have to understand is that when it comes to chronic wound care, they actually don't have an answer for it. So when they say they can tell you where along the way the wound is in the healing process, but they have no idea when a wound is going to heal. They still don't. And they told me that the guy that figures out how to wound healing will win the Nobel Prize for sure for medicine because it's a massive, massive problem. And I remember just laying it out to him and he was just like, you know what? I, I can't tell you if it's right or wrong, but I am going to tell you, I'm going to write down the protocol. And that's the conversation we had. And, and that was the type of stuff that is available in today's culture that was not available 20 years ago. Right. Right. I couldn't have gone and got that peptide off the internet and injected it into my patella tendon and cut my recovery time by 50% in 2000. It just did not exist. If it did, probably would have. I'm not going to lie, but it didn't. It didn't exist. And, and therefore, I spent a year having to wait the old fashioned way, fingers crossed, to see if I was even going to be able to walk properly again. Right. You know? That's yeah, it's a different time. It's a different time. It absolutely and I is. No, the moral compass on that right sure, now. Sure, that's fair. That's fair. Listen, so I we're not we're not uh, proponents of abstinence education. We like to think through some stuff. So what if what if I pose it this way to consider the moral element of it? Uh, assuming no injury, assuming nothing like yeah. that. What's your best nutrition advice for say there's a, a high school or college athlete that listens right. to this? Pre-injury, right. how do you get, kind of get ahead of this stuff? So going back to what I used to do for a living when I used to le lecture on sports performance. The, uh, so I worked for one of the biggest supplement companies in the country for sport performance supplementation. And it's not nutritional advice. Like, you know, as we know, we can't really give it because it's such a regulated right. area. 
But I will say what some what I consider to be some of the best sports nutritionists have, have said to me, not the ones that were like pyramid people, people that were in the trenches. And uh, so I had a couple rules. This is a steadfast rule I used with my athletes. Do not spend a dime on sports supplementation until you can make it 30 days without missing breakfast. Dude. We have the same kind of idea. It's the same right. idea. And we ask people, I don't want to hijack your story, but we, yeah. uh, we're like, when people come to ask about, do we, uh, what, what are your thoughts on creatine? What, what can I pick up at GNC that's going to help me move along? Uh, I, we ask them those things. We, we look for timing, uh, quality, timing, and quantity uh, in, in that works. And, and we yep. say, like, and, and we ask them, document your food for a couple mm-hmm. weeks and, if you, and bring that back to us and we'll tell you if you're even ready for the conversation. It starts with mm-hmm. breakfast. Yep, you guys are right on the money, and in it, like the timing, the timing, quality, and quantity is a good way to look at it, because even if you get somebody that gets away with intermittent fasting a little bit, that's totally cool, as long as they're meeting their macro requirements for the day, mm-hmm. as long as they're meeting the energy demands of the day, as long as you don't have a situation where uh, a young female athlete hears the term intermittent fasting but secretly turns it into intermittent starving. Yes. And those are issues that we deal with in the real world. For sure. Right? Um, I have an athlete that I deal with that constantly. And it, it's it, those are real conversations. Um, if you can get through all those things, then then you can start to look at bigger picture stuff. When you start to look at the introduction of sports supplementation, what you're really looking at is how do you fill the gaps? Right. What are the things that you need to ensure that you're increasing the rate of restoration? How are you taking the 24 hour window and shrinking it by a couple hours. Um, you know, initially you got to look at the big ones, especially in developmental athletes before you even talk about protein, before you even talk about carbohydrate supplementation and energy, you have to look at mineral concentration and mineral concentration is the one that gets often overlooked because we don't think of it and we don't see the effect dramatically and the sales force behind mineral concentration levels are not really, it's hard to make zinc sexy, right? Right. right. It's really tough. Um, it's hard to tell people that magnesium is responsible for more functions in the body than any other thing you're going to use. It's hard to make an 18 year old realize that their testosterone is going to go up when their zinc levels are optimized, right? Because they're already feeling like an animal. Um, so those are things that older athletes learn way too late and probably could have benefited earlier. Um, the fact that if you balance out your amino acid complex, and I'm not talking BCAs here, I'm not even talking, I'm talking like glycine, lysine, proline. When you start looking at those amino acids that don't really, again, have a sexy nature to them, but you realize that they are the building blocks for collagen formation, Right. those are the ones that are truly going to bulletproof the tendon and ligaments during the hard training. For sure. Right? And and you can play with that a little bit. And if someone doesn't want to go to GNC to start taking glycine, um, yeah, they can sure as well start drinking bone broth every morning. Yep. There's ways to sort of introduce it to people that are, say, have families. Like my, my mom was a good example of this. Did not like the idea of supplementation. But if... I could have come home with uh, bone broth back in 1997. She would have been on board. She'd be like, oh, that makes sense. That's real in her right. brain. Sure. You know, she'd be like, oh, sure. that's real food, right? Right. You know, we know different now as we get older, but those are things that I learned along the way. And there's some synergistic things that happen. Like a lot of people will take a lot of these collagen-forming amino acids to bulletproof the body. But what I learned going through all my recoveries, and I did a ton of research on on tendon restoration, especially with this Achilles tendon, is you can take all the glycine and proline and and lysine for the restoration of collagen types one and two for tendon function, but if they're not in an environment of vitamin C or if vitamin C levels are inadequate, they actually don't get converted very well into the formation of tendons ligaments. So a lot of the collagen-forming amino acids work synergistically or in, a, in, a, in an environment driven by vitamin C, right? Simple, simple stuff. Yep. Um, I remember when I was training with Judd Logan, we knew that vitamin C concentrations 
would reestablish testosterone levels post-workout. So we're not even talking proteins yet. We're still talking vitamins and minerals. And and we knew post-workout, based on the USA team doc for USA track and field, said that post-workout, the first thing that you want to do is to reestablish vitamin C because it will blunt the continued elevation of cortisol and reestablish a regulation of testosterone. So basically ways to get anabolic again without using drugs. And so that was that was a big one for us when we were heavily tested athletes, out season tested. We would, it, I'm telling you, this is crude math. This is how it works though. You keep increasing your vitamin C dose until it causes stomach distress. And then whatever that is, for some people it's five, for some people it's 15 grams. But when all of a sudden you get diarrhea and you back off to when it stops. And that is your, that was what they told you your daily needs were. Yeah. Now I never understood, I thought maybe stomach health had something to do with it, but I never understood why the numbers were different until I tore my Achilles tendon. And then I stumbled across this article, this research article based on immune system. And I think Mercola, Dr. Mercola may have had the article written. I have to double check that, but he's a place to start for vitamin C information. When the immune system is under heavy duress, your stomach will tolerate higher levels of oral vitamin C. Hmm. So when I was healthy, I could usually get away with about six grams before my stomach would get upset. When I was recovering from that hole in my leg, I was like 15 or 18 oral wow. grams of high quality vitamin C and I had no stomach issues. Yeah. It blew my mind because I should have been living on a toilet with that level of vitamin C concentration. Magnesium is similar. So the other ones are magnesium and zinc because that's going to optimize hormonal levels as well as neuroconductivity of the muscular system. If an athlete's magnesium, which they're going to lose from sweating, is chronically low, their contraction rate is going to be offset. Coordination will go down. So you get through the minerals. You get through zinc because that's going to optimize hormones. Magnesium is going to optimize sleep. Vitamin C and some amino acids are going to optimize recovery of the tendon ligament system. Once you get those bases, and a lot of that you can get nutritionally if it's a balanced diet, not McDonald's every day. Then after that, you have the conversation about what I refer to as octane supplements. To me, octane supplements are post-workout protein, inter-workout carbohydrates or BCAAs, and maybe now and I, I won't get too heavy into it. I am not pro pre-workout supplements. Okay. So there's a couple reasons why the, there was a big push to put like things like L-arginine into pre-workout because they're vasodilators and they increase the pump. Interesting side note, there, there's a rough study and I'm, I'm having to recall a 10 year old lecture right now. So It'll be a little Bear rough and dirty, no problem. but if you took L-arginine pre-workout, you could see roughly like a 300% potential increase in growth hormone, hmm. which is pretty good. Yeah. Here's what's weird. When you don't take L-arginine pre-workout, the body can have up to a 500% production of growth hormone, right? So yeah, it does. And you can put that on a label that growth hormone increases with L-arginine pre-workout, yeah. but it actually blunts growth hormone release for the increase in vasodilation. So there's some weird things like that that happen. Um, and because of that, I, I stopped using pre-workouts. Um, I'm, I'm just not a fan. So Well, not, not to mention that uh, so much, some of the pre-workouts will be vasodilators alongside like caffeine or something like that. They'll have, you know what I mean? 100%. Completely so contradictory. When yeah. they started putting caffeine in pre-workouts, I knew at that moment before I had even heard about the arginine studies with growth hormone, I knew that the entire industry was a giant piece of shit. Wow. Because that was it. You, yeah, that was it. Because when, when I saw my favorite pre-workout, which had been um, citrulline malate and L-arginine with a little bit of a flavoring additive, when I saw the company add caffeine to that, I knew that they did not care about the vasodilating effects of the supplement. They didn't care. All they cared about was getting someone jittery and fired up because that you can feel, yep. even if you're a slug that can't get a pump, that you can feel. And 
that's going to make you use it again. Now, here's something interesting about that, that people in the supplement industry just seem to glaze over. The increase in caffeine and pre-workout supplements correlated heavily with the decrease in carbohydrate-based diets for fitness competitors, hmm. right? So what was happening in bodybuilders is they weren't getting pumps anyway. So athletes that are on predominantly keto-based diets or athletes that were heavy paleo, very low starch, they, they're, they're not going to get a lot of cellular water retention, even if they take a, a heavy vasodilating supplement. So a pump really wasn't important. What was important was getting jacked up before your workout, and caffeine does an amazing job for that. So with that being said, I'm a big fan. If you're going to use caffeine, use caffeine, because it will increase CNS and maximal strength by 2 to 5%, depending on the person's aptitude. But just ditch the arginine and use it before bed when you're supposed to use it. So L-arginine is meant to upregulate growth hormone in a resting state, increase vasodilation, which is going to make you more parasympathetic when you're trying to fall asleep. And it's not going to stimulate you, but it's going to relax your vascular system and make blood flow and lymph drainage a little more efficient when you're laying down. So use L-arginine as a growth hormone sleep inducer with your magnesium and ditch the cat and ditch it for pre-workout and just stick to straight caffeine and other neurotropics to get a big performance under the barbell. That's good advice, man. That's good advice. The, uh, the pre-workout of choice around here is coffee and an apple, a little bit of caffeine, a little bit of B vitamins. You're probably fine. You're more than fine. Right? Like <laughs> when you think back to early day pre-workouts in the late nineties, they were still drumming honey, right? because it's high in B vitamins and it had some glucose in it and the glucose would get you through the first 30 minutes. And if you're training hard, you'd burn up some fatty acids in the last 30 minutes. But it's, uh, you know, I remember taking apple pectin supplements, like an apple pectin bee pollen supplement was huge in the nineties. The total, you know, now it's just foo-foo hippie stuff because people don't get a buzz from it. Right. Right. It's it's far as nutrition. It's fantastic. It, you know? it is. Uh, yeah. Immediate. Immediate satisfaction certainly seems to be the goal. Um, goal, that word's important because my next question is this. I want to know, and this isn't going to be as big as it sounds, but I want to know what your purpose is. And, I, and, and it was kind of, I was reminded of it, the closing remarks to the Power Athlete Symposium, you know, the, the effects, you know, that you've had on people's lives is huge. Uh, it, it, the timing seems right with uh, Ecobolic uh, now coming out into the world. Um right. What, what do you want your voice to be, right? What, what, what is your aim? What is your purpose? You know, it's funny because I've struggled with this a little bit. So what a lot of people don't realize is, is I started putting out information a long time ago. Um, there, there's always a little bit of ego to everything that we do in this life. And, and growing up as a, as a small town kid, you know, with a speech impediment, I was talking to Brandon Lilly about this yesterday, you know, with a little bit of a speech impediment and a learning disability, I had a really difficult time being heard. And because of that, a lot of people were had a tendency to overlook me until all of a sudden I was right in front of them, even athletically. And it's like, because I had such a difficult time getting the words out that people had no interest in hearing the message that it wasn't until I'd done something dramatic that people were like, holy shit, look at this guy, right? And, and that's sort of what has created the personality traits that you see today. I always enjoyed presenting. I always enjoyed telling stories. My entire family was storytellers. The problem that I've always suffered from is the fact that a lot of people are taking good information and manipulating it for the value of dollar. I'm not against commercialization of our industry. I think it's actually caused it to advance a lot. What I'm against is the changing of the fundamentals for the manipulating of that currency. And so, you know, a number of years ago, I started doing these YouTube videos, but they were very ranty because I, I was very angry and frustrated with the industry, right? But now it's like you mature and you sort of get your words collected and, and you think about it. And when I think of my purpose is it's like, I said this at Summer Strong a couple of years ago, and it's really what it comes down to. It's like on my best day, on my best day, 
my purpose or when I feel the most empowered as a, as a man, as a human being is on my best day, I'm a really good medium of other people's information. I have a, a unique way to weave other people's complexities into a palatable form. On my worst day, I'm a guy that'll stand in front of you and tell a story, right? And you may get something, you may not, but that's pretty much what it's going to be. And for a long time, I thought my purpose was something more grandiose. I, I thought it was um, maybe my athletic achievements, or maybe I had to create something that was going to revolutionize the industry and and all this stuff. And, and what I realized, I'm talking with Bert Soren a lot about it, and and just sort of getting comfortable with the idea that my purpose is my voice and my purpose is not just talking about how to be a better weight lifter, but the process of being better at the process of weightlifting, being better at the process of, of trying to organize your motivations into the proper light, the process of trying to get moving through stagnation. And it's like, we've all had periods of stagnation. We've all gone through periods of extreme depression. Even the most joyous, uplifted person in the world eventually probably has their heart broken, eventually will feel tremendous loss in this life, which will cause a depressed state of existence. How long it lasts, that's different. Right. But everybody goes through the darkness and everybody goes through the, the struggle. But what I find is a lot of people have never been taught the proper practice of patience. The idea that sometimes to get through the most detrimental, darkest, destroying period of your life is not fast and it's not quick and there's no solution. And as much as it sucks, the process is, is time. It, it's getting a little bit each day and not feeling like you're losing ground. And I'm realizing more and more that through the avenue of sports and strength, that if I was to try to verbalize my purpose as it's trying to take this entire weird, forced, gumpy umbrella of experiences and try to push it in a direction that other people can hear and be like, okay, what he said today will get me through today, but I'm probably going to need something tomorrow and that's okay. Yeah. And, and I think you know, we, we all want to hit a home run and then sit back and reap the reward. But man, I'm realizing that I've never been that way and it's probably not going to be that way for me. So I, it's almost like my purpose is to grind away at the process of helping other people grind away. <laughs> well, I love it, man. It's inspired. That's an incredible purpose to have. Right. And, and I yeah. think one of the things that jumps out to us here is that that you can do that. Like you can have, you can touch both sides and sort of be a conduit, right? I think yes. that's an important thing. Time under tension. What, a, what an incredible metaphor strength and conditioning plays to life are one of the, one of the goals of the good athlete project. We get, we get to it in our character by design workshops that we do with teams and everybody is, is essentially how do we, how do we name, how do we put language to these things that we learn in sports and strength, all that stuff uh, so that it can be transferred into other areas because if it exists right. only in a vacuum and you and you win a meet or an event or, or gain an accolade okay fine for the moment yeah. but if you can then take yes. that process like you said name it and transfer it to relationships to states of mind throughout the course of one's life i mean it's invaluable 100 percent. and there's a lot of quotes in history and some have become a little cliche with even though i love memes i'm not even gonna lie i love memes but some of them get so overused that you know, they say that a man has two deaths in life. The day he dies, the day that his name is never spoken again. And, and there's a lot of things like that, that I think of my father, I think of my brother, I think, of, you know, in his family, I think of my uncles. And I think of all these people that have been extreme. My mother, who's extremely influential, um, one of the hardest and tenderest women I've ever met in my life. Humans, not even women. She's a fucking hard woman. She tore her Achilles tendon and just walked that shit off for six months. And, and so and when, I, you know, when I think of all these people and, and I think of the experiences that I've had, it's, uh, it, there really is something to that, to that mindset. The, the idea that, if you do good by a lot of people, you will not be forgotten quickly. If you do poorly by a lot of people, 
you will be put into the ground damn near without a headstone. And there, and there is something about that that I think we all need to, to somewhat, it doesn't matter if you're a very religious person or a non-religious person. It doesn't, it, it's not about spirituality. It's not about faith. It's about, are you affecting the physical world, which is made up by other human beings in a way in which your name will be thought of when you're gone? And it doesn't have to be sports. It doesn't have to be anything other than be the type of person that people will wish were still around when it's over. I mean, I, I don't think it gets much more simplistic than that at times. Oh, I love it, man. It's a powerful message. Um, yeah. Well, I think we're, we're about at time, so that's kind of the perfect full circle. If you – dude, well, I've, I've, got two, I've got two quick ones. One is that, uh, dude, I, I like to talk also, and, I've, and I feel like – I don't know. You're a busy dude, but at some yeah. point in the future, we might have to have you on again because yeah, every time sweet. you say something, I want to dig into a little part of it. I want to hear more about your mom. Uh, you know all this yeah, stuff, yeah. so we might have to have you back on if you're okay with it. Yeah, Some... she, she's a piece of work, man. She she's a two-time cancer survivor, and never once have I ever heard her talk about it wow, in man. a negative. Like she just is like, yeah, cancer, fuck it. Yeah, like, I... like, and so when I went through my injuries and when I went through my setbacks. I'll tell you what, the, the pillar of strength for some of those conversations was my mom. And as, as caring as my mom is as a, as a human being, like really a warm, like warm human, man, oh man, was there no quarter for self-deprivation. Like if you were sitting around moping about yourself in any aspect of life, she was just like, that's not how it works. It's not how this, it's not how this life goes. You, she, she'd give you your minute to be upset about something, but if you started to mope, like you started to get like that mopey, woe is me, she, she just was like, she just had none of it. And not in a hard way, but just in a way where you're like, yeah, my mom's been through some shit and she still just keeps going. Yeah. Huh. I better, I better get my stuff together. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, uh, definitely a big fan of, uh. And, and it's shown in the type of women that I've been fortunate to date in my life is I'm a big fan of the very strong, um, very strong, steadfast, pioneer-esque personalities yeah. from the yeah. female energy. Yeah, huge fan. Like, I just, I just like people that represent a little bit of a, of a steelness to them that they wrap up very well in a humanistic quality. Very cool. All right. Well, my last thing for you is this: our, yeah. our friend Coach Nadalna here. Uh, mm -hmm. We call it, it's the lightning round. He's got nice. a, a couple quick li uh, lighter questions for you if you're open to it. Good. Let's do it. Let's do yep. it. Get in here, guys. What would constitute a successful day? A successful day to me is, at this point in my life, is getting my message out. It really is just getting it out. It doesn't even have to be perfect. It's just like if I need to say it, it's got to get out. Yeah. Uh, first album and first concert. First concert was 1995. It was Garth Brooks in Calgary, Alberta. He came out of the center of the stage, went with my mom and my girlfriend in high school. And my first album that somebody gave me was Rat Out of the Cellar. <laughs> Nice. <laughs> nice. I think it was Rat, yeah. Still played in weight rooms everywhere. I like it. Uh, exactly. Favorite book and movie unrelated to the field? Favorite book that I've finally really gotten a hold of is uh, The Power of Myth by Joseph Campbell. It's the only one that I've read or listened to multiple times. My original favorite movie of all time was a Spielberg flick called Always about these pilots that dropped water on force fires, but there's like dead spirits and shit in it. It was really a strange movie, but I was obsessed with it as a kid. As an adult, it would be the movie Big Fish or Walt Mitty. What was the second one? Walter Mitty. Walter Mitty. If, if people have not seen Walter Mitty with uh, something about Mary, who's the guy from that? Ben Stiller. I know what ben you're talking Stiller. about yes. now. Okay, yeah, so, yeah. So Walt Mitty is an English term for a bullshitter. 
And this guy lives inside his head until he realizes he has to seek the world to find himself. It is a cool flick. Walter Mitty. Yep. Have you, have you ever seen the movie Stranger Than Fiction with Will Ferrell? Yes. I feel like I that have. would be, based on what you were saying, I feel like you'd really be into that movie. I don't know if you're a fan of it or not, or if you, if you remember it very well. That one for me is super vague, so I don't think I've seen the whole thing. But I remember starting to watch it, then getting like distracted and being like, I need to come back to this. I'm going to watch that movie. I've, and, <laughs> and we'll watch Walter Mitty. There you go. Uh, yeah, you got to watch Walter Mitty. It's like it's like being John Malkovich, right? Like why we watch that movie doesn't even make sense. But we do. <laughs> yeah. On that same note, last one for me. Uh, who would play you in a movie about your life? Owen Wilson if he gained about 35 pounds. <laughs> you yeah. said a resemblance thing. Is that just a preference? or? There is a shocking West Coast aloofness to my personality. <laughs> That I, I try really hard not to not to uh, not to let out very much, but the majority of my life, I look at stuff and I'm just like, dude, and that's about as deep as the thought gets. <laughs> I, think, I think he might be one of the only ones that could pull off. Probably after the age of 35, Woody Harrelson from True Detective. I got a little harder and a little more bitter. I can see that. I can see that. I can see it. My mom went to college with him, believe it or not. Okay, so what you're saying is we got a chance. I think, uh, (laughs) let me talk to her. I don't know what their relationship was like, but I'm going to be like, Woody, I got the role of a life. The role of a life, that's right. (laughs) The Woodsy bio. He'll probably say, stop calling. But, you know. (laughs) True story. All right, well, that's all we got for you, Damon. We really appreciate you coming on. Uh, it was great awesome. to meet you down in Austin, and I'm, and I'm happy we've been able to stay in touch. I really appreciate it. Yeah, it was a pleasure. It's, uh, for those that are listening to this, I hope that I'm not the only reason that you've caught on to this podcast because you've missed some great ones prior to this. So for those that are listening that are following me, and I linked the shit out of this, um, definitely go back and watch some older episodes because you guys have really had some great guests. I appreciate that, man. Thank, Thank you. you. And, and we'll stay tuned with yours as well, for sure. I appreciate it greatly. This episode brought to you by Hand Armor Chalk, the official chalk of USA Weightlifting. They are also the official sponsor of the Illinois High School Powerlifting Association, a partner organization overseen by the Good Athlete Project. We would not support a product we didn't believe in. Check them out at Hand Armor Chalk on Twitter and Instagram.